Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, and me, Dr. Adrian Young. Welcome to episode five on race in context, looking more specifically at Stop and Search with Dr. Patrick Murphy. Hello, Patrick. So nice to have you as a guest on our podcast. Thank you for being here. Hello, both. Lovely to join you. Would you mind uh, telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, certainly. Uh, So I am a geographer. Um, I hold a PhD in social and cultural geography from uh, the University of Durham where my research focused on um, forms of, of counter-terror security um, and how they become part of everyday life in different ways. Um, and that started a, a set of research interests um, where I'm really interested in, in the practices and cultures of security um, and examining how, how security governs bodies, um, how it governs identities, um, and then trying to extend debates around uh, the life of security, trying to expose that life. Um, and I'm really interested in, in trying to make sure that people take seriously the ways in which people um, and populations experience security, um, and particularly through the more intimate geographies of encounter. Um, within that, I'm interested in how people feel, um, how they imagine, and perhaps how they might resist um, security in all its forms. To kind of conclude on that, um, I continue to be interested in uh, developing ways that security is deployed um, and how we might think of it as a lens through which we can explore and connect with uh, broader themes of identity, belonging, uh, race, culture, um, and particularly power um, as it pervades all the former. Great. So, Patrick, we like to start off all of our episode by asking our guest a big question. So how would you define the concept of law? And um, now we know that you're not a lawyer, so uh, you don't need to feel like you need to give a very legal answer, but we would love your take on this. I can promise to give anything but a legal answer. Um, so I guess the kind of in a rudimentary sense for me, law is that that system um, of rules, um, the rights uh, and duties uh, of, of a society or of our society. Um, I see it and in my work, I, I, I consider it as a form of governance. And then it goes back to that notion of it as an expression of power. Um, and I think it's really important to think of it in, in relation to our identity and how we identify ourselves um, and the creation of subjectivity. Um, so kind of draw on Foucault here, um, we're subject to the law um, and the legal system that establishes the rules of society and that informs and, and creates our subjectivity and how we perceive ourselves. Um, and then also as an apparatus, um, so it, it organizes us, it shapes us, it shapes how we understand ourselves and our lives. Um, and then finally, going back to the idea of, of uh, encounter and the idea of how we, we live our lives, I'm interested in what happens in and through the law, so how we live it and the lived experience of the law. That's very interesting. And certainly we can see the parallels with your research interests in terms of security and how you you know, perceive the law in that context. Uh, certainly power comes through very strongly. Um, and of course, today's podcast episode with you is talking about race in context and stop and search. So I thought it would be good to ask you to give us a little bit of a breakdown of the relevant laws around stop and search in the UK uh, for the basic listeners, just to get a bit more of a sense of everything. Um, what are the history behind these laws? And you know, what, in your opinion, are the problematic parts of the law. We have heard a lot about things like the Stephen Lawrence inquiry um, and the Lamy review, but perhaps you could put it all in a little bit more of a context for us um, so that we can really get to grips with how race is being used in this context. Yeah, definitely. So as you rightly say, um, stop and search um, is is a particularly controversial 
um, and contentious police power. And it has been that case for for a long time. Um, and it doesn't look as though that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, so the police have, have the power to stop and search citizens um, across the United Kingdom. And that's under a wide range of, of legislative, legislative acts um, with the purpose uh, predominantly for preventing and detecting crime, which on the face of it is, is pretty straightforward. Um, the promise of, of extending those powers um, has regularly been used as a kind of go-to or rallying cry uh, for politicians. We've seen that of late. Um, and also for police forces. Um, it's, it's very much aligned with that notion of, of being tough on crime. Um, so it's kind of performative in that sense. The police, they can stop you and question you at any time, um, but they can only search you depending on situation. So it comes back to that idea of, of context. Um, stop and search powers broadly allow officers to allay or confirm their suspicions without necessarily making an arrest. Um, the first thing to know is there are broadly uh, two kinds of stop and search. So there's suspicion-based stop and search. And this is probably the one that most people think of um, when they hear the term stop and search. And these are powers which require officers to have reasonable grounds to conduct a search. This is sometimes known to known as or referred to Section 1 uh, searches. There's also within that um, a kind of variation on the law, uh, which allows police officers to search those they reasonably suspect are terrorists. Um, so that's the terrorism power, more, more scarcely used. Um, and then secondly, and more troublingly, uh, in, in my opinion, in the opinion of various legal scholars uh, and, and civil rights activists, you have suspicionless uh, stop and search. So section 60 um, of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994, bit of a mouthful, um, allows a police officer to stop and search a person without suspicion. Um, the power, importantly, um, there are conditions here. The power can only be used when authorised by a senior officer and based on certain preconditions. And those conditions um, are temporal and spatial. So there has to be um, an, a notice um, that this order is in effect at the moment, although um, at present those orders are kind of being reviewed and it's potentially going to be extended. Whenever uh, a, uh, the police... Um, instigate a stop and search they have to explain the legislative power um, that they're that they're doing that under they're conducting it under problems abound if if they don't do that they have to use the correct power in the correct circumstance each time that they make a stop and search they can't just rely on someone's consent so they have to actually explain why a person's being stopped um, and under what power you mentioned the kind of the history of it um, and it has a, a very long history uh, dating back to the um, the vagrancy act of 1824. Um, so these sorts of, of um, activities and policing practices have been around for a very, very long time. The precursor to that, I mentioned, Section 8 of the, the Vagrancy Act, um, these were known as the SUS laws. These came under scrutiny in as, as recently as the 1980s, uh, disturbances in Brixton um, involving predominantly um, young black men and the police, owing to, to dis disturbances there. Uh, the government performed the, or undertook the Scarman report there uh, to investigate the, the underpinnings of that, why that had come about. And as a consequence of that, recommendations from the Scarman report um, developed or advanced or changed the SUS laws uh, and introduced the Police and Criminal uh, Evidence Act in 1984. And the idea there, this was a legislative, legislative framework for the police and policing powers uh, to try and combat some of the issues um, that came out of the Scarman report particularly issues there around the, the indiscriminate use of, of stop and search powers and issues there within race. The, the, stop, and search, the stop and search powers as we see them today, the, they were as a consequence of reforms um, that came about as a, as a result of those disturbances. Uh, so one of the things that the Scarman report recommended um, was the introduction um, of conditions. Uh, so a repeal of the former sus, sus laws, um, introducing the power of stop and search with reasonable grounds. Um, so that required officers to then follow the PACE code, um, the guidance on stop and search and providing guise, guidance on its use. In effect, the, um, the powers as we see them today um, emerged in the 1980s. The use has obviously continued to, to evolve through case law, through legislation, uh, through amendments and changes to, to guidance, to the guidance that the police follow. The particular uh, sort of historical moments here really significant in, in regards to the use of the power and also in regards to um, disproportionate use of, of policing powers and the over-criminalization of particularly 
black people and black communities came about as a consequence of um, William McPherson's, Sir William McPherson's inquiry um, into the Stephen Lawrence murder. The investigation found that the Metropolitan Police was institutionally racist. And subsequent to that, this is a, an accusation that's been leveled at the, the Metropolitan Police in particular ever since. Uh, so one of the things that McPherson recommended um, was that all stop and search encounters should be recorded and that these records should be monitored um, by those in policing. And there was actually an amendment to uh, to PACE with additional guidance um, used to provide to the police on what actually constitutes reasonable grounds for a search. For our listeners, would you be able to give us just a little bit of background on the Stephen Lawrence murder investigation and uh, what were the circumstances around it so that our listeners can understand and contextualize really those those um, the, the, the report? So Stephen Lawrence was um, a young black man in his 20s who was was murdered and the, the situation circumstances surrounding that murder remain kind of confused. And the reason for that is failings on the part of the Metropolitan Police to, to undertake their investigations. And the, the McPherson report found that the reason for those failings was in, in the mind of the report down to institutionalized racism. So owing to, to Stephen Lawrence being a young black man, um, the police failed to, to investigate in an appropriate and robust way. The, as I mentioned, the, the um, McPherson inquiry acknowledged that the stop and search powers are required to help the police detect and prevent crime. But the report called for great scrutiny um, in how they're being used. And McPherson, a direct quote from the report, came to the clear, clear core conclusion that disparities in stop and search rates by ethnicity demonstrated, again, direct quote, racist stereotyping by the police. Um, McPherson recommended that all stop and search encounters, again, should be recorded, um, should be subject to then then scrutiny. Um, since then, one of the, the uh, developments, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she introduced or recommended um, bringing forward a package of reforms designed to contribute to reduction in the overall use of stop and search, and also to make sure that stop and search was used in a better and more intelligence-led way. And again, this was to, to try and improve um, stop-to-arrest ratios, which are not particularly impressive. Um, goes back to the idea of, of almost justifying um, stop and search at all. There's not a, an awful lot of evidence come onto that. The reforms did did reduce stop and search. However, disparities in terms of rates uh, by ethnicity didn't improve and still haven't improved. Even more recently, so bringing it more up to date, um, the Lamy review a couple of years ago stated that uh, sorry, there still remains a disparity in terms of policing outcomes and policing interactions and so on, on the grounds of race. I think it's really interesting with the Lamy Review, one of the things that he points to or is pointed to in there is how police-person interactions affect the, the remainder of the criminal justice system. And one of the things that, that the report concluded was a draining of trust between the criminal justice system, particularly black communities. So we see the, these long-standing and persistent accusations of, of institutional racism. Um, over the past 30 years and longer. Consistent patterns of practice throughout the criminal justice system, particularly in stop and search, where black people in particular are subject to greater degrees of, of practice of the law. Patrick, do you know um, the reason for the Lamy review? So assumedly there was something that happened or was it because they realized that there was a disparity um, in terms of high numbers of certain types of individuals being stopped and searched? No, so the Lamy review was was broader than just um, just stop and search. We see uh, really kind of deep rooted uh, inequalities uh, really uh, uh, under underpinned uh, by the law. So that's very interesting in um, this law and, and society podcast for us. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about reasonable suspicion? And we gather it's quite controversial, so that's why we want to know a little bit more. And why is it so controversial? So um, requirement for reasonable suspicion is, is really important. Um, it means officers have to think, or sorry, are required to be able to demonstrate um, that there were objective factors um, which have made them think that, that someone that they've stopped and that they've searched is likely to be involved in crime or, or is carrying something that's prohibited. Um, and it's section one here, section one searches, again, that, that most people think of um, when they think of stop and search. And there has to be genuine suspicion. Um, and that has to then be based on those reasonable grounds. Reasonable ground for suspicion, it's a legal test to which um, a police officer has to, has to satisfy before, um, before they can stop and search. And the test that has to be applied in particular circumstances in each of these is broken down into two parts. 
Firstly, the officer has to have formed um, a genuine suspicion in their mind that they will find an object for which the search is being exercised. Um, and secondly, that that suspicion for the object must be reasonable. And this means that, again, that objective basis. This is very interesting. Would you be able to provide us with a concrete example of how um, that would look like in reality? What would be, um, what would constitute a reasonable suspicion, really pragmatically speaking? So it's quite an interesting one. I borrowed the, um, there is a, a definition or an explanation that's that's been provided by Liberty. And, and they say that reasonable grounds is what an ordinary person uh, would think is fair if they had all the information that a police officer has. So quite simply, you can't be stopped for no reason. Um, the police can't stop you for your physical appearance. Um, they can't stop you because you belong to a particular category or particular group. Um, they can't stop you because they know that you have a criminal record. They can't stop you because they've stopped you before. But then in that context, so um, what an ordinary person would think is fair and reasonable um, and suspicion are all quite slippery context, uh, concepts. And this is the slipperiness of that. And, you know, it's, it's meant to be objective, but it's not. It's one of the reasons why this concept proves relatively ineffective um, as a basis for challenging police practices in the area. So if a police officer were to say, this is my, my reasonable suspicion, does that mean to us the same thing? Exactly. I think that that really puts the whole question about what a reasonable ground is into into context. You know, what an ordinary person would think is fair, perhaps is completely tainted by various stereotypes and um, different things that they've experienced in the past. And I suppose that that is really the reason why this is such a controversial power. Um, so I think that it would be useful for us to now ask you um, why it is so important that the police actually even have reasonable suspicion before they can stop and search. I mean, I think you probably answered that a little bit in the previous um, in the previous question, but shall we just unpack that a little bit more? Because I think it's really interesting, given how slippery that concept is of reasonable grounds, reasonable suspicion. Yeah, I think you know the the requirement is crucial. Um, it ensures that the police officers are or should be able to to point um, and describe the objective reason for stopping someone. So it can't be or shouldn't be subjective. It can't be, as we've mentioned, it can't be on the basis of, of what someone looks like. It can't be on the basis of prior knowledge of that person. And it can't be on the basis that they making an assumption that something might happen. And it's, it's really, really important uh, that police officers aren't left with um, unfettered discretion um, as to who they can and can't stop. Police officers with reasonable suspicion, they know that they have to account or they should be able to account for their actions by demonstrating those grounds. Um, and it's a really important safeguard against unconscious bias or at worst, overt racism. But there remain widespread concerns um, that the police are continuing to misuse stop and search and are still doing it uh, without necessarily applying reasonable grounds. So, you know, hunch or instinct is not an objective factor. Personal factors, knowledge of prior convictions, stereotypes, um, generalized assumptions about a person belonging to a particular group or a group of people. These should never be reasons for, for or certainly not reasonable reasons, and they should never be used. Very interesting. Again, would you be able to provide us with kind of more facts or statistics around this phenomenon of the stop and search and maybe highlight what the real issues are? You've talked about racial profiling, obviously. Um, would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on that for our listeners? Yeah, so the, the effectiveness um, is is often subject to, to debate. As I've mentioned, various home secretaries have, have remained uh, consistent in their belief that that this is a tool that works. It's almost mythical belief in its uh, efficacy, um, insisting that it's a really powerful and important tool, particularly in, in response to, to violent crime, weapons offences, drugs offences, and so on. So successive governments have shared that view and have granted police new powers recently, or are exploring new powers and extending the level of, of sort of intrusiveness while removing safeguards. And it does seem that this, this mantra is very much based on this belief in the statistics. Police forces have actually reduced uh, the number of stop and searches over the past 10 years, but in the last year or so, they're starting to, to creep back up. So mentioned about the inefficiency of this as a, as a tool or as a tactic, there's only 20%, so this is 2019 to 2020, um, only 20% 
of searches resulted in a criminal justice outcome, which is where there's an arrest taking place linked to the search. We know statistically that black minority and ethnic people are more likely to be searched than white people. With black people, it's 10 times more likely that you're searched than, than a white person. Um, I don't know if this is um, in your area of expertise or this is something that you can comment on, but um, being North American myself, um, stop and search is also uh, a very uh, big issue in the United States um, and also kind of prevalent in Canada as well. Um, and we all know cases of police brutality. Do you think, in your opinion, that there is a link between stop and searches and all this racial profiling uh, and police brutality uh, against, I think, minority uh, men particularly? I think so. In, in the sense that it falls back to that notion of stereotyping and attitudes. I'd, I'd, I'd just be speculating, though. So in terms of, of disproportionality, the reasons appear to be complex, ranging from stereotyping, implicit institutional bias, to positions of, of groups in society. But what is clear is that people from certain groups are considerably more likely to be stopped, with often significant implications for themselves and their uh, communities they're part of. And that's something that's not really brought up in conversation. So in the abstract, it seems perfectly reasonable power for the police to use, but in reality, in its application, it's wildly disproportionate. I'm sure that um, this is also reminding us all of the very famous George Floyd murders in a uh, murder rather in in America which is where Sabrina's question comes from so in that vein in terms of real life examples I wondered if we could maybe talk a little bit more about a one that's a bit close to home um, in particular for the city community and there was a news item about during the first lockdown in the UK where a city staff member was actually involved in a stop and search situation yeah, I think if if I remember rightly, um, he and his son were taking part in a charity bike ride. And I think it was his son who was initially approached. Um, his son was then uh, stopped and detained um, quite aggressively. And then I think the father was also subject to that. And they received an apology from the police and they upheld a complaint that they'd been stopped on the grounds of appearance, on the grounds of race. And as I mentioned, the experiences of, of these stop and searches, attend, they tend to be overlooked, it tends to be an, uh, or perceived as an isolated incident. It's couched in statistics, um, and the experience of it is forgotten. But as in the case of, of your colleague from City, those on the receiving end of stop and searches, it, it can be really, a really, truly awful experience. For those who aren't, it's easy to dismiss um, that experience is a minor inconvenience. You've been stopped and you've been detained for what, five minutes without necessarily thinking uh, about the, the consequences or the outcomes for that person. So people are in denial about the actual cost of that. People will claim that, that it's for, for other people's safety. And for officers, encounters might seem pretty fleeting. For them, it might be perceived as, as a momentary inconvenience for everyone involved. It's part of their working day. But for those who are stopped, they often have a very, very different experience, um, finding it unsettling and often profoundly disturbing. Yes, and I'm sure that that's something that would be incredibly difficult. And I wondered if you could therefore talk a little bit more about, you know, the things that we might overlook or perhaps an officer might overlook, might forget in an experience of stop and search, which actually is a big deal to the person being stopped and searched. What would it affect? How would it change things um, in, in terms of their interactions, maybe with society, with the police? I think it, it really does range. Um, so for some people, um, it it leads to uh, a reduction in trust um, between themselves and, and the police or themselves and other institutions. For some people, it has become uh, a frequent occurrence. Um, they're stopped because, you know, how they look, they're stopped frequently. I think it's worthwhile for for your students, if they are interested, to to have a look at stopwatches report viewed with suspicion, um, which has a collection of, of testimonies from people. Um, Stopwatch gathered stories um, about experiences and thoughts um, from people in the UK uh, to give a voice, um, to actually to, to allow them to describe um, and draw attention to the impact that the policing and that police activity has on them and as, as individuals, has on their families and has on their communities. And I think that's really important, that it's not just the individual. You know, it has an effect on their family. It has an effect on, on the communities within which they live. I think it's also so interesting that we're talking about law here. You know, this is the Law and Society podcast, yet 
it appears that all these, um, you know, quite terrible experiences of various different people appear not to actually be being helped by the law, which one might argue is what the law maybe is there for, as we talked about in episode one with uh, Professor Luke Mason, what exactly law is for. Um, But law is actually contributing to these more negative experiences, which would appear to be a bit of an oxymoron. And and that's, I suppose, why we're talking about it in context, because it's not always there to save people. And we have to consider why that potentially is. Yeah, I think definitely. One of the things that that is important to recognize is that these powers um, account for a significant proportion um, of official complaints that are made about the police, um, particularly from from black people, um, other minority ethnic groups. Um, And there is this clear perception um, within particular communities and the public more generally um, that this is actively targeting by police officers against black people. Uh, I think I would definitely share that 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 opinion, and I'm pretty sure it's a it's a fact more than an opinion. I um, know myself of um, friends um, and uh, colleagues um, in the United States informing their um, young children from a very early age about the risk of being stopped by police, of showing their hands and telling them they're unarmed, and um, that it would be uh, a frequent encounter for them in their adult life or not, or even teenage years to be stopped in search and um, to get um, acquainted with that idea and that it might not be the case for their classmates that are white, for example. So um, definitely uh, ingrained in the culture, um, I would say, in the United States. I uh, imagine this is something that's also um, most probably a typical occurrence in, in the United Kingdom in certain communities, unfortunately. So in your opinion, do the police powers of stop and search uh, strike a fair balance between the right, if we can say, of the accused and those uh, that are subject to searches and the rights of the state? Um, Is there really a balance there and is it proportionate in your opinion? Um, In short, no. Um, I I don't believe that that those powers strike a fair balance at all. Um, I think there's, there's a broad question as to whether um, the police um, in any democracy or society that claims to be a democratic society should have the power to stop and search citizens without any suspicion of wrongdoing. There are people urging, whether scholars, human rights organisations or the government, to look more closely at the powers broadly, but particularly uh, where there is no suspicion, both in principle, so the principles that underpin it, um, but then also the practice of it. Um, I jotted down a quote from 2008, uh, Rayner and Newburn, who noted that um, police use of stop and search has arguably generated more research than any other area. And that's a pretty striking observation and reflects the fact that stop and search is one of the most common uh, forms of adversarial contact between the police. I think that's really interesting that this is, um, you know, this is a policing power and it's been described as adversarial um, by those two academics. So then calls into question the nature of the tactic um, it taps into tensions, I think, that lie at the heart of policing. Um, and that notion of preventative policing, exercise of coercive state authority and crime control. And going back to, to what I said at the opening, this sense of being tough on crime um, and it being potentially performative and relying on uh, statistics without necessarily too much kind of an evidential basis for that. And we see time and again that some police forces, all police forces are using these powers disproportionately. Um, if they are using them disproportionately, then you know the rights of, of the individual, um, the rights of society are being forgotten or overlooked. Um, I was wondering, without being um, overly political, um, if we could say that there is um, sort of an angle of certain people, there's um, uh, upper middle class in, in um, the United Kingdom that might feel threatened um, in um, certain neighborhoods that feel like there is not enough police surveillance um, to keep their neighborhoods safe, um, especially in suburban areas where uh, maybe um, there's not as much traffic, for example, at night. And there are cases of small theft, um, not violent crimes per se, but um, that they do believe that stop and search would be um, a good and preventative, like you say, measure um, to try to stump down that crime and keep the streets safe for um, mothers and their children walking around or um, uh, teenagers playing in the streets uh, that are not involved um, in this potentially organized crimes or robberies. I think part of that would come down to how we perceive 
um, the police and our relation with the police um, and the sorts of interactions that, that an individual has or um, is aware of and also how we perceive um, people who are involved in those sorts of exchanges and interactions. Going back to the point that 20 to 25% of stop and searches result in um, an arrest, it, it doesn't work. It's not a tactic that works. So, you know, the, the evidence that this tool works isn't there. And I think that sense of, of how we experience those interactions, it's really important um, that we think of, of how this practice and how policing practices more generally shape and reshape um, the identity, identities of those who are affected by them, uh, by them directly. So it's important to move beyond considering or, or perceiving what it is to actually think about how people think um, and feel about being stopped in search and then examining those, those experiences their experiences, the experiences of their friends, their experiences of the families, the experiences of communities in which they live. Um, so I think uh, it's it's almost a kind of counter to your point, Sabrina, that we, we should be looking more at, at the concerns of the people who are living this and experiencing this um, and communities who are subject to, to greater policing, um, over-policing, um, than those who are perhaps raising complaints that there aren't enough or aren't sufficient officers present. Absolutely. I just want to make sure I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I'm not actually defending that point. I think it's a really staggering statistic. And, you know, again, to play devil's advocate, absolutely. I, I also want to say very clearly that I don't advocate um, the, ex, uh, the abuse of this power. Um, some might argue that actually it helps to um, deter people from you know, committing a crime and you obviously would be very hard pressed to um, quantify how much deterrence there is. So um, on that kind of devil's advocate note, what about the claims, which I have certainly heard um, about the effectiveness of stop and search that, you know, emphasize its crime fighting benefits? Um, how do we reconcile those kind of arguments? A lot of devil's advocate questions here for you, Patrick. Um, it, it's a straightforward claim. Uh, in many ways, uh, and pointing to benefits is straightforward, but then actually evidencing it hasn't happened. You know, I was going to say it's difficult. It's not. It, it just hasn't happened. So those in, in policing um, and I think three uh, successive home secretaries have, have made the claim um, and continue to make claims that, that when this is targeted, um, when it's conducted in line with the law um, or in line with guidance, um, it's useful for confiscating uh, weapons or prohibited items um, without undermining public trust in the police. But it's it's a false claim. Um, promises of of extending uh, the powers are regularly used as as a rallying call. You know that that again that notion of of being tough on crime, of being seen to to act, of being seen to um, to deal with with various forms of criminality. Um, but it's really really important to recognise that that measuring the effectiveness. Um, of stop and search is, is really difficult. Um, there's remarkably little evidence um, to suggest that, that it works either as, as a deterrent or investigatory power. There was a, a, a paper published in the British Journal of Criminology which looked at 10 years uh, of data from sources uh, from London. And this is really important because a lot of those arguments for stop and search rely on, on the data. And, and that, that article found that the effect of stop and search on crime um, is likely to be marginal at best and mentioned that there is some association between stop and search and certain crimes, but claims about the effective as an effective way to control or deter offending seem to be misplaced. Those sorts of claims, they're just not, they're not founded. And quite often, as I mentioned, the people who are suggesting uh, efficacy, they make that claim without particularly substantive um, evidence. It's also really important to, to recognise, and this I think speaks to Sabrina's point, that assumptions about effectiveness um, ex obscure the need to look at alternatives. Uh, Kit Malthouse last year, um, there was a suggestion of, of expanding the powers. And one of the things that Kit Malthouse said, or defending it, was that this would allow time for alternatives to be sought. My counter to that is look for the alternatives. So rather than extending these powers, rather than developing them, why not spend the time looking at and investigating um, what else could be done? So overall, the existing research on the, on the topic uh, shows that, that increasing uh, use of um, stop and search and, and increasing the powers is unlikely to have any meaningful impact um, on levels of crime. That includes levels of violent crime. It potentially won't have any effect whatsoever. Um, but it, what it does do um, is increases the, the, the costs uh, to, to people and individuals. 
I think that's very interesting when you talk about looking at alternatives, um, especially because there's really kind of a relationship or a dichotomy between them versus us um, in this whole policy and whole um, legislation around stop and search, where there's the the bad guys um, that we preventatively criminalize in a way, and um, there's us good citizens that want to be protected. But what if um, these groups also need to have um, faith and confidence in in the police powers as well, because they de- they do need that that protection. Um, we we never know what's around the corner, so um, it's quite interesting that no work um, is being put out there really um, in trying to find solutions collaboratively with um, different leaders of communities and, um, and and government to try to see if actually a grassroots solution could could emerge. What would you say um, about the effectiveness of stop and search um, and that the fact that it ignores um, some social costs? For example, for example, the um, institutionalization of the use of tactics uh, to reduce public confidence and trust in the police. And uh, that ties into the point I'm, I was just making now. Um, what would you say about that? I think the, the costs um, and the benefits, it, it's not necessarily something that those who are or have the responsibility for decision making, it's not something that they take into account of simultaneously. Um, we have seen attempted reforms, but the police and home secretaries, government are pretty steadfast in their belief that, you know, it's it's not just an important, but it's a vital tool. As I mentioned, this is even when the, there's no particular strong evidence uh, to support that. We've seen time and again that the poorly targeted um, and conducted stop and search is damaging. It's damaging to, to trust. It's damaging to police community relations. Little evidence that it's an effective deterrent to offending. So I think going back to your point, uh, Sabrina, you know, that sense of what else could be done, um, could be could could greater work be done with with communities, community leaders, uh, former offenders and so on. It is happening, but it's not happening enough or sufficiently. We see conversations tend to focus on the broadening of the power. Uh, conversations tend to to be uh, focused on its on its efficiency or effectiveness, um, on as a, a tool that will protect, um, but less about will you know, what, what are the alternatives? And as I mentioned, the, the, the correlation between uh, negative experience and disproportionality, it creates lower levels of trust. We know this. It creates lower levels of confidence among communities. Uh, so this is, extends beyond individuals who've experienced this. People know that the police have a reputation, hesitate before, have, hesitate before saying they are institutionally racist, but people know they have a reputation for being institutionally racist. And so people aren't going to have trusting relationships with with the police. So perceptions, those perceptions um, of injustice are pretty pervasive and they they create relationships and they inform uh, people's judgments about policing activity. They inform people's judgments about injustice um, within policing activity. Um, and quite simply, uh, no democratic policing practice or activity uh, can really survive uh, without legitimacy and consent. So there's much that, that we still uh, don't know about the impact uh, of stop and search individuals. There's certainly an awful lot that the police uh, don't know about um, the impact of stop and search individuals and communities. And that, for me, is is a frustration that the, the effort, the work to understand those outcomes beyond the numerics, beyond the statistics, um, it's it's not being done. It's not being developed um, in a particular, particularly invested way. Ultimately and crucially, I think developing trust and reestablishing the relationship of trust in over police communities. It depends on on curbing um, certain exercises, certain practices, and stop and search is, is clearly one of those. Um, there seems no appetite to do that um, on the part of, of the police, on the part of government, and I, w- I would worry about those communities and, and whether trust is, is gone altogether. This is quite concerning, a lot of really quite um, scary stuff. And I suppose um, in, in the similar vein of these concerning issues, um, we've heard some things about um, debates about whether this requirement for reasonable suspicion and a grounds for reasonable um, suspicion before someone is stopped in search being removed. So in your opinion, do you think that the requirement for reasonable suspicion is, is going to be removed? Um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty frightening 
situation to to be in. Um, unfortunately, um, there is ongoing debate um, about whether the police should be required uh, to maintain the need for reasonable grounds um, before searching. Um, a couple of years ago, so in, in April 2019, uh, there was a pilot uh, undertaken to actually make it easier for police to trigger um, Section 60. So the Section 60 is where you don't need uh, suspicion, reasonable or otherwise, uh, to stop someone uh, and search them. Um, so that gave officers the right to search people without reasonable grounds in areas um, where serious crime could break out. And any any extension um, of section, section 60 is disproportionate and unnecessary. So I'm going to repeat that. Any, any extension of Section 60 is disproportionate and unnecessary. That comes from the Home Office's own research. So it suggests that higher rates have no discernible uh, crime-reducing effects. And yet, there are ongoing debates that police shouldn't need to, to maintain uh, reasonable grounds. I think it's really important to, to remember that with, within, well, when a Section 60 is, is, is in place, um, an entire community is then potentially viewed as offenders. So if you're in in that area, then you can be stopped and you can be searched without suspicion. Um, goes back to that question of, of what does that do to trust um, and what does that do to a willingness uh, to work um, with the police to prevent harm and solve crime? And beyond that, there's a really important notion or question of, of whether people who have been subject to crime are then going to go to the police because that trust is gone. With the Section 60, most police officers actually recognise that once once crime, violent crime has occurred, um, offenders leave the area. So why maintain the Section 60? If you're seeing an entire community as offenders, then as I mentioned, you're, you're losing trust, you're losing that willingness to, to help, to prevent harm, uh, to help solve crimes within the community. Following the, the pilot project, uh, the president of the National Black Police Association said that the relaxation of Section 60 was not needed, um, and also mentioned that this risks pushing an entire community further away from police at a time when trust and confidence is already uh, significantly low. Another sort of worrying development here, uh, so these powers, Section 60 powers, uh, so the removal of the requirements use reasonable suspicion, that's, that was to be used to prevent serious violence. Within the last few months, the government have drafted a um, policing crime bill, which would subject, potentially, if it goes through, this would subject peaceful protesters uh, to Section 60 searches. Um, which is worrying in itself, but then if we think about disproportionality, then it follows that policing, uh, so the use of or the removal of reasonable suspicion in the context of a, a peaceful protest, it's more likely that people who are already disproportionately stopped and searched will continue to be disproportionately stopped and searched in those settings. Um, so rather than stripping back these measures, rather than looking to repeal the legislation, um, the policing bill would actually give police uh, greater powers uh, to stop and search. Could we imagine even that um, the power to stop and search uh, during peaceful protests would, would be used as a way of censoring certain um, protests? We've seen cases like this, for example, in Hong Kong of using pandemic powers, for example, saying, well, we will stop gatherings because we don't want the spread of the virus, but we knew um, that there was kind of something underpinning that was a bigger political um, shift or advantage for the government there. So would you um, think that um, something could be potentially used by future governments or the current government to try to um, establish their power further and stamp down some sort of protest? I would put it this way, I'd be more comfortable if that legislation didn't pass. Um, the words, you know, draconian and authoritarian um, aren't words that, that you want to necessarily use loosely. But if if you're removing the right to protest, and if you're uh, subjecting people to to this sort of power in the context of a peaceful protest, then I think draconian and authoritarian fit the bill. No pun intended. And I think it, it's that sense that if if that law is there and if it can use be used legitimately in that context, then there is every chance that it will be used legitimately in that context. And you've removed the power to protest. So you then can't protest uh, against that. You've removed the power to to contest the stop and search by saying that you no longer have to be suspected reasonably or otherwise of doing anything. Um, so it can then be used indiscriminately, which is a terrifying prospect. So putting that aside, but looking at other concerns that we have, we, we looked at racial discrimination, we looked at bias profiling, 
Um, can the use of stop and search powers by the police be justified in any sort of way? I'm, I'm loath to say it, but it can. However, it, it's really, really hard uh, to get away from how it has been used and how it continues to be used. Um, and that's a legacy that, that now stretches like a long way. Quite simply, the, the issues, they're not new. Uh, disproportionality, uh, disproportionate use of the power isn't new. Accusations of institutionalized racism aren't new. It tends to be ignored. Um, justifications for, for the use of the power, for the extension of the power, um, they're pretty flimsy. Um, any defense against disproportionality is all but non-existent. So in, in, in that context, it's really hard to say, for me to say, that it can be justified. Two years ago, the, the Independent Office for Police uh, Conduct, um, they raised concerns uh, in a report about stop and search practice by the Metropolitan Police Service. Um, they found that the legitimacy um, of stop and searches were being undermined. Um, and the report concluded there were varieties of issues there with, with how, uh, how it was being undermined, but the one that stands out um, was a lack of understanding about the impact of disproportionality. And the inference there is that the power is being used uh, disproportionately by officers, but the officers don't understand that process or that practice. The IOPC wrote um, that they're concerned about the confidence in the Metropolitan Police Service, particularly uh, with black communities across London being affected uh, by how their officers are undertaking stop and search. Um, so that comes back to that notion of, of it as an encounter, it having outcomes, those outcomes extending beyond you know, the supposed uh, minor inconvenience on the part of the person who's been stopped and searched. Um, raise the, the 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 kind of question of, of discrimination, bias, profiling, enduring. Uh, last year, Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cressida Dick um, denied uh, that policing is institutionally racist. Uh, she told MPs, um, and this is a quote, that it was not a label that I find helpful. Uh, she said, I don't think we're collectively failing. I don't think racism is a massive systemic problem. I don't think it's institutionalized. And more to the point, I think we have come such a very, very, very long way. To me, that's a staggering quote. It, it says nothing for the, the individuals who've raised complaints or concerns. It says nothing for the experiences um, of communities. It actively denies that there's a problem. Again, it, I've used this out of context perhaps, but, but it's, it's frightening. Um, so without reform, it, it's really hard to see how this can be, how stop and search can be justified. But in the context of, of a quote like that from Cressida Dick, I don't anticipate that we're going to see reformation anytime soon because the decision makers don't see that there's a problem. The decision makers are deciding that safeguards uh, should be removed. And that's terrifying because it sends a message uh, that the police can, can continue uh, to harass um, communities uh, and use practices which are racially discriminate. And in the context of, of what is a wholly ineffective power, instead of, of handing greater powers over, government and police should be looking to, to repeal, certainly repeal suspicion of stop and search, uh, like Section 60, and should be subjecting Section 1 to, to ever greater scrutiny. And returning to your point, uh, Sabrina, about the kind of the alternatives and, and about what we see in different contexts, um, we, we need community-led interventions. Uh, we need greater investment and health, education, housing, social welfare. Um, and we need, you know, different approaches in communities where, where we're seeing crime. Um, we need new, better and different strategies uh, for keeping everyone safe. Um, and, and within that, I would say that, that rights, uh, the rights of the individual need to be at the heart of that. Thank you, Patrick. That was really interesting. I think you make a really compelling point for uh, the law needing to change. And then on that note, uh, we've reached our very last question, which we love to ask all of our podcast guests. Last but not least, in your opinion, does context matter? And how would you define law in context? I think that stop and search has been a perfect example of how law in context needs to be really considered a little bit more deeply. So can you let us know what you think of this? And I know, again, it's a law question and you're not a lawyer, but whatever you can give us would be really interesting. Just, just reminding everyone that I'm not a lawyer. Um, so for me, I think law in context, uh, going back to what I said at the opening, it's very much about um, how it's lived um, and how we all experience it. Um, so it goes back to that notion of, of power um, and its expression. Uh, it goes back to that sense of, of subjectivity 
the formation, the reformation of, of subjectivities and how we're subject uh, to the law and how we're subject to the law in different contexts. Um, and it's also about resistance. So those, those important moments where resistance is needed, resistance is necessary. So how, how might we contest the law? Where, so what, in what context is it appropriate? What context is it necessary that we do that? And that includes for us um, as academics, as scholars, subjecting it to critical, critical scrutiny um, and not accepting it as absolute. I think context is, is historical here um, in what we've been speaking about. So historical in the sense of, of where uh, laws such as stop and search have come from, how they've been developed over time, um, and then what we've witnessed in the last few years. Uh, so with movements like Black Lives Matter, response to that, uh, to support of that, um, but then also the state's dismissal of it. Uh, so we've seen lawmakers uh, routinely dismiss uh, Black Lives Matter. Boris Johnson saying uh, the UK is not a racist country. The report published Number 10's Commission on Race uh, Ethnic Disparities, uh, finding that overt outright racism persists, um, but maintaining there's no actual evidence of institutional racism. Context there, the current moment, and how the law is being written. Uh, what context are we seeing that being written? Who's it being written by? Who's it being written for? who's being forgotten. And again, it's how that touches on us uh, in different ways. And that takes me to the final point. So I mentioned I'm a geographer. So I have a, a, an interest, a love um, of space uh, and the spatial. Um, and there we might think of where, so where the law happens. And that can be the site a person is stopped and searched in. Go back to the section 60. There's a temporal aspect to that. There's a spatial aspect to that. You could wander into a, an area where a section 60 is, is in, a, in effect and not know. Um, but also where an individual has been stopped um, and, and how that affects the outcome or how that affects their experience. Um, and then with a, a final point, that idea that the, the law is a mechanism of the state um, and how that impinges or touches on the intimate space um, of the body um, and the encounter there. Um, and I think that's something that we really need to pay more attention to and something that the police really need to pay more attention to, to how the law is experienced in that context, how these relations of power um, and the context within which power is expressed, how the law is expressed as an apparatus of power, um, how that shapes ourselves um, as subjects. That's absolutely wonderful. A great take on that question that I really much enjoyed. And it's quite deep, actually, Patrick. So thank you for that. Uh, well, uh, all I have left to say is thank you so much for your contribution to our podcast. I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed it very much. So thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.